Well, welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Hello, folks. Today we are joined by Dr. Alex Alanese to discuss the buzz around ChatGPT, a chatbot of his own that emulates famed physicist Albert Einstein and his take on artificial intelligence in wargaming. In three, two, one. Dr. Alanis, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Yeah, we're we're so excited to have you here today. Uh, you're the principal investigator for our weapon engagement optimizer, which I mean, literally the acronym is WAPR. So it's a it's a big deal. And we're going to talk about your work at the Air Force Research Laboratory, but we're even more hyped to have you here because there's this thing in the news that's taking over the news, chat GPT. And we hear that you can explain that to us. So what can you tell us about chat GPT and the technology behind it? Chat GPT is 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 a culmination of a lot of work and various kinds of machine learning, uh, reinforcement learning. And, uh, essentially, it's a technology that has read the entire internet and built statistical models for natural language. Some of the, the ChatGPT2 had 1.75 billion parameters after reading the internet. The ChatGPT3 was at 300 billion parameters, and it builds statistical models, and, and it allows you to do very clever things like say, you know, create me a 10-page PowerPoint on climate change from the point of view of a Latin American country or an island country, and it will do that. Uh, someone in a restaurant said, uh, write me a script in the style of Scorsese for a movie with its plot, and it will do that. And so it's uncanny, and it gives you the idea that, that maybe the this, we've captured a little bit of humanity within the machine. However, uh, let me caveat that, and there is a... Um, GitHub location for dedicated to ChatGPT to show its limitations. And I, I saw a YouTube this weekend uh, of a teacher, I believe, and she was saying how you can use it and how you can write essays and, and, and study people, historical people. And it's quite scary because she was saying you create it as a reference dictionary or reference encyclopedia, rather. And when you start looking at its limitations, it will give you the correct answers roughly 80% of the time. Um, I, I created a different chatbot uh, avatar for, for Albert Einstein, and, and I, I loaded it with all sorts of stuff. And when I compared it to ChatGP3, I asked a, a specific question. If you all read on, up on Einstein, he, one of his closest friends during his, the early part of his life was a Paul Ehrenfest, a, one of the great physicists, who didn't think he was one of the great physicists, and he's kind of depressive. And he had two sons, and, and one of them had Down syndrome. And it's a historical fact that Paul Ehrenfest murdered his son with Down syndrome, turned the gun on himself, and killed himself. And when I asked Chat GB3 uh, to assume the persona of Einstein, you go, ask Einstein, comma, how were you impacted by Paul Ehrenfest's uh, murder-suicide of his son and himself? And he came back and said, what are you talking about? Paul Ehrenfest was a great dad. And, you know, he never murdered his sons, you, you know, and, and it goes on like that. And I asked also complicated questions, say, on Einstein and his first wife and his second wife. And, you know, and, and it, it, what we're asked, ChatGPT would come back and say, you know, they, they had a complicated relationship with the first wife. And it would actually miss lots of historical facts that with a quick Google, the first thing that would come up was a New York Times article, you know, saying there were letters between first wife, uh, complaining about first wife to second wife and ChatGPT saying, no such thing. So it's scary in the sense that if you don't do independent research, you're going to be sold a lot of untruth by ChatGPT. I mean, maybe 20% of the time, but that's that's not good. 
And that's something we've heard, at least looking at the news, is that a lot yeah. of it is used as a reference document or a tool. It's a way to guide, like I've heard folks talking about using it for the medical fields, for editors right. and papers, saying like, this is right. a rubric, but you have to massage it after the fact. It's not end all be all. Right. Um, with that said, since you're working with this personally, we're really going to break into this more uh, later in the podcast. But I really want to ask this now, at least to kind of plant that seed. How are people building that trust then? Is there a way they're pointing at different databases to better read and be more accurate? Or is that 80% margin where it's kind of stuck at? Well, the claims are from, from ChatGPT, the company, is that by letting it out to the you know to us, the public, that the more we use it, more it will direct itself. But it's it's preponderance of data. I mean, if you're off on, say, medical, I mean, we use WebMD, right? If there's not that much data as there would be on, on popular stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, there's there's always going to be that risk. There's not enough data for it to give proper advice. I'd like to tie back to something you introduced, the thought of you have an Einstein chatbot. What is that? Einstein chatbot is a data structure and methods that are quite simple, actually, but they took about two and a half years to put together. And uh, let me let me back that up with the inspiration for, for Einstein chatbot. I spent my entire life looking at how everything's related to everything and hierarchically connected from, from particles all the way to you know stock markets to, to the big bang. I've always been fascinated by how do we learn? How do we organize our thoughts? How are we so efficient in handling so much information? And the clue I got was about several years ago when I was thinking about Helen Keller, who was blind and deaf, and so therefore her, her connection to the world was tactile. And she said that her connection to the world began with Braille when, when her teacher put her hand in a stream of water and then her other hand on these dots, Braille, and, and Helen made these connections. Oh, this symbol and this tactile sensation are an equivalence. And so I'm, I, put a, I put together a thought experiment where I imagined a gigantic, tall, empty warehouse full of, for simplicity, full of whiteboards on the first floor, second floor, it's open space. And so the first thing you do is you, you have water connected to Braille and then water connected to say household items like cup and glass and, 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 and sink and shower, and then maybe a, a whiteboard. And so within that whiteboard, you would have connections of, of these concepts that are somewhat independent, but somewhat related. And then maybe a whiteboard nearby on bodies of water, rivers and oceans, and, and then maybe activities on a different whiteboard, boating and vacationing and cruising and hurricanes. And I can imagine a, a police detective movie where the, the detective is tying strings between the whiteboards and, and, and there's probabilistic links, right? As the detective is trying to solve the mystery. So what I, what I did is I followed that paradigm and I, I spent two and a half years roughly creating 101 chatbots, each one an expert at one slice of Einstein's life, his thoughts on atom bombs, his thoughts on the future of humanity, his thoughts on relativity, on the future of physics, on just 101, all the way down to his favorite foods and whether he liked cats or dogs. Uh, his personal life. And I, what took time was that each one of the chatbots, each one of those whiteboards in Helen Keller's warehouse, for me to connect historically accurate the, the, the different sentences. And then between the different whiteboards to connect, well, if you asked Einstein, my chatbot, well, what did you do to relax? It, might, it may land on, well, I would play Mozart, or it may land on, I would go sailing, or in some order that way. And it's probabilistic so that people are using the chatbot. They're not getting the, a very mechanical, repetitive thing. They're actually 
experiencing the shadow of what history left behind who Albert Einstein was. And so it, it's 101 chatbots with a master chatbot that decides where, where to go and start replying to the user. So it has a topological structure. The, the, the diagrams on the, uh, on the whiteboard and the strings between whiteboards. And, and I think that's how we humans are structured. And that's a missing element in today's quest for general artificial intelligence. Well, first, I love the visual you built beforehand, say kind of like being like a Dick Tracy, if you will, hitting the ground yes. and doing this kind of investigative work. And that's a really important question we wanted to ask you. You, you just hit it in the head or at least open that door. Your Einstein chatbot, you said, is a, another bridge step to making something sound more human, not just robotic and spitting out a response. And you're, think, you're saying that the idea behind that is this connective tissue you're building feels more naturalistic and has a variation of responses like we would have. Is that kind of that element or what are you doing to make this feel more human? It's exactly the, the, the text files that, that feed the 101 chatbots are exactly that analogy of the Helen Keller warehouse. So each whiteboard would be a text file, and then the, the strings between whiteboards would be the probabilistic connections. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm actually working with a, a fellow who's uh, pretty good at ChatGPT, and the idea would be to overlay Einstein atop this ChatGPT technology yeah. and therefore take it to the next level of general artificial intelligence. Uh, so we'll see what he does. And, and that's why I'm interested in doing this podcast is it, it's time to, to layer in what we're missing to make ChatGPT the next level of, 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 an AI, of an AI. And I'm hoping this gets the word out there and helps spread it out there. Just from a human element, I have to ask, why Einstein? Is it because you're a physicist? Yes. But I mean, I, I began studying him when I was uh, probably thir 12, 13 age, roughly. And so it was natural because I've had the most exposure to him. It wasn't necessarily him. I'm, I, as other physicists go, I'm very interested in, in Lisa Meitner. She was the lady who figured out you can make atom bombs and uh, did not get the Nobel Prize. She, in my opinion, and in history's opinion, robbed. Uh, so there's just so much more literature. There's all the scientific papers, all the, the PhDs who've analyzed him scientifically, and then there's the more personal biography. So it's just a lot of data on him. So it's, it's easier. That makes sense to have the reliable data set as you build these connections and in a whiteboard uh, analogy that you gave. I'm curious now, do I have to use the Einstein chatbot to find out what Einstein's favorite food was, or do you recall? I think he said spaghetti. Wow. It's elegant. It's simple. simple. <laughs> and well, a part of this too that I'm trying racking my brain with is so when you mentioned gathering a lot of this data for it uh, with your the chatbots you built, how much of this was based on books you read versus things online? Was there a blend, or was this all pointed online for resources you found? Clearly, the the things dealing with history, with the 1910s, 20s, 40s, all the way to the 50s, the, the deal that with his professional life and his science and and his interaction with with uh, post World War II with political leaders, that's all very well documented in mm -hmm. books. Finding the uh, stuff on pets and stuff was a, a heavy internet search. I'm sure. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm and, sure there's and a then you have to verify it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Like you said, <laughs> sometimes you got to check like, hey, was he a cat person or a dog person? I mean, your chatbot would know now, but you have to understand. You got to double check it. So a little more cat. I mean, sorry, a little more dog. Not, <laughs> hey. but he had a problem with cats. Hey, trust me. I mean, I, I've grown up with both. I, I love me. I have my own dog. If I wasn't allergic, I'd also love cats. So I get if he's got a similar caveat. But I, I'm curious too, like, so Michelle had a good point asking about the food. Is there any like interesting fun facts about like um, Einstein you found out through this journey? Something that 13-year-old you would have been like, that is so cool. No, the 13-year-old was very interested in general relativity. Um, 
he just his network of friends and what he did to, to stay connected to the world. He was very connected to Hollywood. So there you go. Something interesting. That's really cool. So as in like, he was just oh, a yeah, fan of his works or did they yeah. exchange? Yeah, they, they were close friends and, and they, they met a lot and interacted a lot. See, so this is why the chatbot's important to talk to and the person behind Absolutely. it. You learn stuff like I, this. And so I find that I need, I printed out the chatbot, which is about 150 pages of text so that I can play with my own chatbot because there's so much to it. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, speaking of that many pages, uh, that, that's a lot of work. Um, what were some of the difficulties in making this software? Uh, making the software was trivial. I found a, a teaching chatbot out there with the Children's Glossary for Astronomy in Python. I studied the algorithms. I saw the libraries it was calling in, in uh, Natural Language Toolkit, NL2K, and I just taught myself Python and NLTK tools, and then I just started modifying, creating 101 versions of it, and then tying them together. So the, the hard work was the tying them together historically. And ultimately, what do you hope that the Einstein chatbot does, or is the foundation for? I hope it's an eye-opener for the people who are doing statistical methods. Uh, chat GPT is uncanny when there's a lot of data, and it makes the right connection statistically to get to, in my opinion, our artificial general intelligence, you will need to take the, the methods and data structure I created and overlay them. And I thought it was going to be very challenging, but when I presented this to a, a fellow in, in machine learning who's good on G chat GPT, he said, oh no, we've got tools. So as we speak, he's working on this and we'll see what he produces. He thinks it's going to be a natural blending of the structure to chat GPT. And then chat GPT won't make mistakes, at least regarding Einstein. ChatGPT is uncanny. It's language model. And my, mine's a little mechanical because it's it's text that I created. And so, you know, eventually you will repeat if you if you if you interact with it enough. And, and ChatGPT is just amazing. Uh, it's, it's language. And that's one of the things I think that makes it so simple and so great is you doing this first foundational groundwork to help inspire others to hopefully join in and do the same or pull in people doing similar work. And so the applications are, imagination wants to wander around. I think you can make digital companionship seems to be a big thing, especially with the, the Facebook meta or make copies of yourself, uh, leave copies of yourself behind <laughs> or people, historians, and someone saying, you know, you could maybe interact with historical people and ask what if questions. And now if you're going to ask what if questions to people who have passed on in history, well, then you're, you're going to have to add your best guess. Is to, you know, and, and I did that for Einstein. And, you know, I, hey, Einstein, did you ever think you were going to do gravitational wave astronomy? Uh, because I don't think he would have thought it's possible. But but I went ahead and created a fictional future Einstein as if he was cognizant of, of current technology and science. And I think being a fan of sci-fi, you really what you built here is a framework for a lot of what Star Trek has the holodeck. <laughs> the idea of having this predictive like idea and this personage that can really answer questions and interact right. with you. I mean, it's a base model that builds, but that just it sparks my mind to think of that, of how I could sit in a room and just talk to Einstein. And, and the wargaming community also has expressed interest in it, and naturally, because they want to see how people might act or, or imitate a commander or imitate someone in that role. And that's a perfect question, too, because that's one of the big things we want to see is how this could tie into AFRL or even the Air Force's mission. It sounds like that's the case. Like they could be this commander or at least you said either historic or present. Like, could you kind of dive into that a bit? So, so professionally, I mean, my branch here at AFRL, we do wargaming, modeling, simulation analysis, and, and we've created the Whoppers we started off with. That put my foot in the door to much larger projects the, with the Department of Defense. They have a joint all-domain command and control program. The Air Force's answer to that is the Advanced Battle Management System. And it's about how do we leverage traditional machine learning and artificial intelligence at all levels, uh, whether it's inside some, maybe some autonomous vehicle making decisions 
or whether we're wargaming at a tactical level or strategic level. I think this is all uh, nascent, so that makes it exciting as well. So there's a, there's a large interest within DOD and, and Air Force, obviously, to pursue these kinds of thoughts. Well, to step back a minute, maybe for some of our listeners that might not have such a military background, what is wargaming? That's a great question. I don't know if people might be familiar with the old game of Risk, but it's essentially a competition between two sides and one of them is trying to win and hopefully the other one doesn't win. Uh, Wargaming goes back to its mathematical inception, goes back to World War II with the famous mathematician von Neumann who created game theory. I mean, you can think of it as playing Monopoly and you can think of that as a very simple form of wargaming where you're trying to take the domination of, of, of the board or you can think of it as um, wargaming in terms of my teenage boy who gets on the internet and puts on virtual reality goggles and they're playing virtual wargaming with aircraft and tanks and taking you know objectives on land, etc. It's a broad field. It also extends to the Ivy League towers where people just discuss things and write essays. You know, it, it, it can be boring like that as well. <laughs> I mean, hey, I think it's exciting. And as a student of history myself, I remember hearing about some of the proto work in the First World War, where they would assign health, if you will, or at least points to different like models and aircraft to help simulate some work on the ground as well. Like it's grown in an incredible way over the past century. And I I think it goes back to something Eisenhower said that all plans are worthless, but planning is the most important thing. That exercising this, right? Planning. Whereas all plans individually are probably worthless. probably plays into helping you plan for contingencies. Absolutely. And, and I know we got kind of a, a snapshot of what you do day to day, or at least kind of your role in the actual war game, or I should say wargaming modeling and simulation analysis branch here. But what kind of work goes into actually gathering this information and programming the situation? So at the direct energy director, the, the wargaming we do is, is at the tactical to more campaign level stuff. And so we gather a lot of real world information on what we may be facing with as threats and we look at what we have as assets and and so we do a lot of work to prepare a realistic thing we ask the war fighters who actually do this these missions and how they would plan out and then we we layer in the technology that we're developing here at AFRLRD directed energy the, the high-powered microwave, the electromagnetic effectors, and then we, we create about a week's worth of exercises where we bring warfighters in, they'll sit in simulation chairs, they'll have the, the whoppers helping them either as air battle managers or as fighter pilots or on the ground defending assets. And so right now we've been concentrating on, on defensive of assets on, on the ground. And, and so that's what we're doing. Okay, fascinating. Uh, that's a really cool breakdown of how you the data you collect and how you put it all together, that, that's a lot of moving pieces. And I know you mentioned at the top, and I want to connect back to that, you said the magic word whopper again. Can you kind of dive into exactly what that is and how your role ties into it? So the current versions of whopper, and as it has taken a while to mature them, mature them is, is a, we have an air battle manager that imagine sitting somewhere in an aircraft such as AWACS, but it's not necessarily associated with AWACS. Okay. And suggesting to the air battle managers, if you have these air assets airborne with these effectors on them, weapons on them, how to best allocate them to the threats that are inbound and around the airspace. We're working with human machine teaming folks at at AFL headquarters at at White Wright Pad on that. The other one is, imagine the Army guys, the 94th AAMDC, I forget the acronym, but they are essentially the guys who operate that and Patriots, the different assets. They said they're overwhelmed with information. They need help. 
And so the, the ground variant of the Whopper is there to see, okay, you've, if you have fab-like missiles, Patriot-like missiles and other missiles and futuristic stuff like rail guns or lasers or electromagnetic weapons, how do you best use them and how do you reduce the, the load on operators? And then we have the, the fighter one, which the fighter pilots would have on their screen uh, and it would suggest to them, okay, this is what your aircraft has. This is the best way to employ your kinetic systems, your missiles and or futuristic uh, uh, laser capability. And so eventually this, this technology will crawl to other domains, to, to cyber and, and, and beyond. And right now the whoppers are individual actors. And the next phase is to, to begin linking them together by, via radio, via what we call Link 16, which is an old system for for, for things in the air talking to each other, to the ground and back and forth, so so that we can begin teaming, beginning work the mathematics out of how to best optimize teams of whoppers in different domains, in the air, on the ground, and, and, and elsewhere. Okay, and that's one of the things you mentioned that's very interesting, is talking about how this war game can help, you know, guide systems and people and how to operate in future, whatever it may be, future fields. Uh, but an incredible thing about this, though, is you touched a point on where a lot of people are afraid with artificial intelligence or even machine teaming. Uh, they're like, oh, it's going to take over. It's all they're going to, there's no more human operators. But it sounds like using systems like this, it's just a tool. It's guiding like, you should use this. I'd recommend this weapon in this situation. This would give you the best result. Like that could be a machine teammate, you're saying? Like that's one of the uses. Yeah. For the moment, I think it's human machine teaming. We'll, we'll wait for Hollywood to kick in later. But <laughs> one of the uh, great champions of chess was defeated in 1997, I believe, by Deep Blue, IBM's mm -hmm. chess machine. And, and rather than leaving the field defeated, he has created and he's very active in, okay, world champions, bring your own supercomputer and we'll play against each other with our, our supercomputer backups. And, and so... They've elevated the the chess scoring to from the 2000s. Say, and I, I don't fully understand chess. To now, the chess has reached the 4000s, way beyond what any humans would ever have been able to do without bringing their own supercomputers. Recently, a, a group of non-chess masters beat all the chess masters with their machine. Uh, you know, chess. <laughs> and it, it was uncanny because the it was embarrassing for the champions. But but yes, you can leverage machine teaming with humans to, to get much better results. Yeah, that sounds like one of the biggest results here of that. It's not only educational, but like you said, you can build on it and learn from it yourself. And that's yes. a, a really big point we've touched on with your wargaming work here uh, with Einstein and ChatGPT. I, I kind of want to bring this to a head then, especially with what we're doing at AFRL. Uh, we, I mean, in this kind of predictive nature of Einstein and everything we mentioned, what would you tell folks that are curious about the limitations of predictive software then? Could things like this have given us tools to prepare for some events that we could have predicted happening, like different either catastrophes around the world or even things happening with the climate? Is that possible or is that so science fiction it's way off? I think it's possible in limited cases. And, I, and then I'll, I'll go from the limited cases to where I think you get a brick wall. I think we have enough digital data floating around the clouds out there in the internet world that you can begin to, to look for tense situations, highly correlated situations where there's a lot of emotion, say uh, there was an, an event called the Arab Spring sparked by a single person who was trying to sell, you know, stuff on, on the market to feed his kids. And the police took away whatever he was selling and he was angry enough that he burned himself. I, I, I do believe he passed away. And then that sparked huge social change in the Middle East. I mean, for, it went from Tunisia to Egypt and, and beyond. And I think we, we might have, through social media, the, the ability to detect these things. And if we're nefarious, the ability to spark you know, a, a, a social catastrophe or even to 
create these tensions, you know, with artificial intelligence and machine learning to where nefarious actors can set things up to hurt democracy, say. And I, I do believe that it's not necessarily prediction, but you can drive something towards a higher probability. Uh, as far as general prediction, if we're in the movie The Matrix and I have that kind of computing power, I still don't think you're going to get very far because our, our systems are chaotic. They're inherently nonlinear. If you, if you have feedback and, and it's the logistic equation and, and it's co the common example is the bunny rabbit problem of bifurcating populations, you know, very quickly the Fibonacci sequence and the feedback problem becomes chaotic. It just becomes totally unpredictable with just the slightest tweak in the, in the reproduction rate. And, and, and that's what I think we're going to be extremely limited now. To counter that, there's a lot of things that are persistent in our worlds. Our, my grocery store, my friends, there's been decades worth of persistence in that. So we'll see how far these things can go, but I don't think you can predict Arab Springs as much as you can drive things like that. Well, it sounds like chaos theory still reigns, but I mean, that, that can make things difficult, of course. So, I mean, that's, and it sounds like too, what you mentioned early on, like there's a lot of ethics that goes into this as well. Thinking about bad actors getting hold of things like this versus people in our hands trying to make the world a better place. There's a lot to discuss. With, you said it's nascent though. It's still very early. So these debates about this are still happening, nice. um, but it's interesting to hear that too, with how chaotic systems can be. It can be hard to predict, but again, tying it all together, it sounds like no matter what, this is still a fantastic tool that is going to hopefully help us along the way. It, it can play into what Eisenhower said, right? The, the act of planning is, is very valuable. Absolutely. And I think like, so we've had a lot of really interesting talks here about wargaming, predictability, about chat GPTs. Like it's really, we've had run the gamut. Uh, so I kind of want to ask a final question for you then. Sure. So I know a lot of folks may be interested about working with things like chat GPT or making their own Einstein. What advice do you have for folks who are trying to break into this? Like saying, hey, I want to do what he did, building 101 different facets of Einstein, but let's say with Charlie Chaplin. Where would they start or what should they do first? Uh, well, first of all, I've made my stuff available out there on, uh, on through the Google Drive. It's just, you can go pull down the files. Second of all, it's just the world is so different uh, in terms of education. There's so much stuff on YouTube. There's so much stuff on GitHub. I, I started by watching YouTube lectures on from the from the TensorFlow, Google TensorFlow guys, and downloading their software and playing on my internet and just repeating what they did until I felt confident. I just use YouTube and use GitHub to, to pull down software and tinker and play. And we're in that age of Thomas Edison again, where you can tinker and play and, and everything is so available. So just go and do. I love that. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us and really diving into a really interesting subject people had questions about. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure as well. Thank you. Make sure to follow us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And remember, stay curious. Logging off.